we're not really creating a new treatment, but we're we're bringing something back that hasn't really existed for a long time. So for people who are trying to start their families today, for all intents and purposes, it's new. Today, I'm talking to Tess Kossad, the co-founder and CEO of Bayer Fertility. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast powered by the Harvey Nash Group and hosted by myself, David Savage, where we bring you interviews with leaders from across the industry and a bit of technology news. Joining me today, I have Amber. Amber, how are you? Not too bad, Dave. How are you? Yes, I'm fine, thank you. I'm fine. Recording on a Monday. I don't think... You already look gutted, and I know why, so let's not talk about the football. Other okay. than to say, they were bloody magnificent. Yep, I think it's probably for the best. They were, they were magnificent, so we'll we'll leave it there. It's a sore yeah. subject. <laughs> I also um, will mention to anyone listening as well, I, I ran 87 miles this weekend, so if you follow me on Instagram or anything else, find out why and, and please sponsor me. Um <laughs> shameless plugging of my charitable cause but i did run 87 miles in three days so that is incredibly impressive mm. and i keep asking you as well i'm like how do you feel dave like, how do you feel and you're like yeah fine and i'm like almost like looking for more of a reaction like i don't know like your legs hanging off or something and, and you're just you're not giving it to me i might go for a run tomorrow you know what i was actually expecting to see you <laughs> like i was I, I was looking at your strava this morning and i was like is dave gonna go for a run would that be a bit crazy <laughs> But I mean, I don't blame you for not, to be honest. No, today, today, I think my net legs need a, a yeah. bit of a rest. Probably, probably a, a good decision. But yeah, tomorrow you can run another eighty-seven in two days this time instead. No, I don't think so. I think, no. I think over three days it was it was fine. Um, it was fairly gross at points. Um, there's there was a video I put on on Instagram uh, at the end of one particular marathon, uh, and it's me and a guy who used to work with us called Joss. And you look at the video closely and there's lots of little black flecks just under my neck. And they're all dead flies. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Absolutely <laughs> gross. Anyway, um, you know what uh, good physical health in men can help with? Go on. Fertility. Ah, <laughs> look, look at, at that. Look at that um, rather clunky uh transition into today's <laughs> chat uh we're talking to tess tess cossard uh the co-founder and ceo of bayer fertility um this interview is i think it's quite interesting in that it's challenging perhaps for some of our listeners but have a listen to what tess has to say and then we'll be back with some commentary and some thoughts afterwards today i'm talking to tess the co-founder of Bayer Fertility. How are you today? Hi, David. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Enjoying this wonderful British summer. Uh, <laughs> where, where, whereabouts are you joining us from? So I'm very spoiled. I uh, try not to be too smug about this, but I'm dialing in from uh, the south of France, from Nice, where I was born. Oh, Christ. I, I tell everyone. Why not? It's a beautiful <laughs> part of the world. Um, yes. Well, I, yeah, let's let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so look very quickly before before we get into anything else why don't you tell us who Bayer Fertility are as a business um, for those people listening who have no idea who you are of course so I am uh, Tess one of the co-founders of Bayer Fertility Bayer Fertility is a young startup that is on a mission to 
to really reinvent the fertility treatment pathway. And the way we are doing this is by bringing back an old clinical treatment called intracervical insemination. So if you wanted fertility treatment anytime up until about 1970, this would have been what was on offer to you in a clinic. And because of a number of reasons, principally, you know, because of the development of IVF, ICI, intracervical insemination, what we're working on really just kind of fell off the map of, um, of available treatments. And so what we're doing is we're bringing it back. The twist is that we are bringing it back in a way that uh, means it can be done in the home environment. So you can effectively perform clinical level fertility treatment in your bedroom, bathroom, home, you know, wherever you feel most comfortable. And our mission really is to make this treatment affordable, accessible and safe. I was going to say that, that this, this might sound really stupid, but safety was the first thing that sprung to my mind because there's one thing, you know, if this was something that was being done in, in, in clinical conditions back in the 70s and now we're doing it at home, can people have that confidence that it's not only effective but safe? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And we're absolutely driven to, to make sure that it is safe. I think there's, two, there's really two things that come under that safety uh, headline. First of all, the device safety, um, but also treatment safety and efficacy. So is it a safe treatment? And really what we answer to that is it's incredibly simple. I, effectively, it's just holding semen against the cervix for an extended amount of time. And you do that with a cap, a silicon cap or some kind of barrier. So right. from a safety perspective, there's it's not invasive, it's not har harmful, it doesn't involve drugs, hormone stimulation or any of those things. From the perspective of the medical device that we're designing to help you perform this treatment, it's really important to us to make sure that that is as safe as possible. So it's a class 2A regulated medical device in the EU. And so we're going through a regulatory pathway at the moment that involves all sorts of testing from benchtop testing, uh, the prototypes, taking it through biocompatibility testing in the lab, right up to a clinical trial that we'll be doing in the US later this year. I was going to ask about that because... As I understand it, there is less regulation around the US when it comes to medical devices than there is in Europe. I suppose as a startup, when you're trying to kind of get results, get data, it must be tempting to go, maybe we could go to a less regulated environment, but at the same time, you want that advocacy and you want that authenticity. And I suppose getting going through the trials, going through regulation in Europe, then is a kind of like almost like a gold standard. Is that an interesting trade-off for, for a young business? Do you know, it's actually a fascinating question. So I'm, you know, half American, half French. I kind of have both, both, uh, both those sides. And I thought that getting uh, regulatory approvals in the EU would be head and shoulders harder than uh, anything that you'd have to go through in the US. Hmm. Interestingly, my experience is that it's actually if not, you know, on par, in a way, the reverse. So right. we've had some hilarious exchanges with the FDA who, and I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier, I said clinical trial, I meant clinical study, uh, which okay, sure. I have learned throughout this process that one must be very careful <laughs> with one's words. But uh, the FDA effectively is, is requiring us to undergo a clinical study. We're very lucky because we don't actually need to do any research to prove the efficacy of the treatment because there's already a bunch of peer-reviewed literature and, and, and data to support the efficacy of ICI as a treatment. 
What we need to validate is that the medical device we've designed around ICI is usable and safe. And so we've got to do a clinical study to prove that. Um, it's the FDA who's leading the charge on requiring that. Um, and uh, moreover, we were originally hoping to be able to perform that study in the UK, which is kind of home base for us, and we're, we're based in London. And the FDA said that there was significant cultural difference between European anatomy and American anatomy, and we would therefore have to conduct the study in the US. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, the hoops we're having to jump through to gain FDA clearance are a lot more involved than what we're having to currently go through in the EU. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll let you translate that. <laughs> so look, I suppose, so you, you mentioned at the top of the interview about the difference between ICI and then um, basically IVF and other treatments. Yeah. Um you know, I, I'm so I'm 36. A lot of my friends are at that stage where they're either starting families or are trying for families, and yeah. where there have been difficulties. You know, I I know of friends um, who have started IVF or have gone through IVF to start a family, and it's almost like, well, if you have if you have trouble, that's what you do. So how do you enter that narrative? How do you kind of get in the conversation and go, actually, there's an alternative here? Yeah, that's. You know, that's an amazing question. And that's actually really going to be our, our principal challenge as a company. We've, we're sort of redefining a treatment category by creating something entirely new. We're not really creating a new treatment, but we're, we're bringing something back that hasn't really existed for a long time. So for people who are trying to start their families today, for all intents and purposes, it's new. When you are going on your fertility journey uh, the, the sort of de facto clinical treatment that you'll be offered is IUI, intrauterine insemination, which involves passing a catheter through the cervix and injecting uh, sperm cells, so washed, uh, washed sperm cells directly into the uterus. So that comes with all sorts of things, uh, hormone stimulation, if it's um, you know one of those cycles, you need a lab to process a sperm sample. There's, it's quite an involved process, it's quite an expensive process. IUI is usually one of the first treatments you'll be offered in the clinical environment. Then you'll go into IVF. Um, and IVF, in vitro fertilization, is really the sort of where clinics go to and, and where most clinics say that that's the highest efficacy treatment that they can offer. And there's sort of all sorts of treatment add-ons that are, are built around that. But I think what we're doing, ICI, uh, is actually... Uh, most of the literature that we see, uh, there's a lot actually of scientific evidence coming out of Denmark on ICI versus IUI. And if you look at the efficacy differences between those two treatments, there's not actually that much of a difference in efficacy. Certainly not a difference large enough to merit the increased cost and invasiveness of IUI. So yes, IUI is a little bit more effective than ICI, but it's five times the price. And that ratio just doesn't correlate um, in terms of the increased price versus the increased efficacy that you're getting. So you've got a product here that um, potentially is interesting to half the world's population. Mothers are getting older. Um, pregnancy seems to be more challenging than ever for a lot of people to um, achieve. A lot of women are, are taught their entire lives how not to get pregnant as opposed <laughs> to how to get pregnant. And it's cheaper 
and more accessible than conventional practices over the last 30, 40 years. What's not to like? <laughs> well, quite. Like, from an investor point of view, this must sound like a dream. But then investors are not necessarily that literate with the kind of stuff that you're talking about. So how do you go work through those barriers? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's so there are a couple of things. I'm, you know, I'll talk about fundraising. It's really interesting uh, to, to me to hear you say half the world's population. I, um, you know, I completely agree with that. But I also think fertility, like everything, it takes two. It takes a sperm and an egg. And um, of course, sometimes actually, you know, the, the way that it was explained to me is that it's a third, a third, a third. So when you present in clinic it, within a, a heterosexual relationship where there is a female reproductive organ haver and a male reproductive organ haver, generally um, the cause of the problem is a third unexplained infertility, a third mm -hmm. female factor infertility and a third male factor infertility. So a lot of the time, actually, the onus on on owning that fertility journey is placed on women. Um, but actually, a lot of the time, a very simple semen test could just rule out um, so many issues that, that would then prevent women from having to go through these highly invasive journeys and treatment. Yes. And whilst absolutely you're entirely right, unfortunately, even in quite progressive countries, there is a massive cultural barrier, though, that... Mm -hmm. Men don't really want to admit that it might be them. And this is exactly, and you know, I, I didn't actually think we'd get here in this conversation, but we're here now. Um, this is an <laughs> absolutely fundamental and critical issue that we have to start unpacking the innate connection between masculinity and virility in society today. Because really, you know, if you look at the data on sperm counts, they've halved 50% from 1970 to about 2011. Yeah. So sperm counts are half of what they were before, and yet women are still bearing the brunt of responsibility in the fertility journey. And yet the easiest, cheapest thing to, that you could do is a sperm test. You know, the, 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 the hormone testing, blood testing, all of those things are a little bit more expensive and invasive for women. Sure, there are so many businesses that exist now that bring those treatments home and make it a lot more accessible. But really the simplest and cheapest and easiest things is firm test. And so I think it's so critical to start unpacking and unpicking those two things. Absolutely. But with the best will in the world, while I agree with you entirely, I still think your, your target market is half the world's population because it's probably the partners or wives yeah. or, or girlfriends of those men who need to be the ones to try yeah. to get through to them. Yeah. Because <laughs> the conversation has to start with those people going, <laughs> maybe, maybe you need to get, maybe you should drink a little less beer. Maybe you should, yeah. you know, do a bit more exercise. All of those things. Maybe you should get checked. Yeah, uh, go biking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so that's why, I suppose that's why I say that's your, that's your audience. Because even if it's perhaps not, that is your door into that conversation. And and I don't think that that's going to change for a while. Um, and it's you're absolutely right. Our foot in the door is, is, will usually be through the female partner in that relationship. I mean, there's a, there's a whole other community of people that we're not talking about who are the, the families that aren't necessarily mom, dad, and two point mm -hmm. whatever children. Uh, you know, yeah. and at the moment, if they want to start a family, the only option is to use frozen donor sperm in the UK. 
use frozen donor sperm and go into a clinic and buy a vial of donor sperm and um, pay a fortune to undergo effectively fertility treatment. So if you are in a if you're in a sort of same-sex couple looking to use a known donor, you really have no options available to you for safe fertility treatment to, to start your family in a safe, you know, effective way. And that's one of the other things that we're quite proud of is the design of the device is such that actually my co-founder will probably kill me for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. Um, as long as the semen that gets poured into the device is uh, human and consensually given, we really don't care where it comes from. And suddenly that opens up a whole world of fertility treatment for anyone who is using a known donor, for someone who is uh, you know, single women using a best friend um, because they've got a support village. They don't need a, you know, a partner for women who have experienced sexual trauma and you know maybe sex isn't for them for people who are less abled um for anyone and everyone who wants to start their family suddenly there's there's optionality there and that's that's something we're definitely proud of so if we get back to that point on on finance and i know it's less it's less interesting in some respects Sorry, than, than actually the, the situation. No, 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 because it's, it's super important. And I think there's some really interesting stuff to unpack there. But ultimately, if you're going to help families uh, of whatever makeup that family is, mm. you have to have that oxygen that, that cash gives you to be able to get this product out there. So how do you find the right investor? Because I think, I think where Femtech products are... Um, are, are, are being put to market getting the right investors getting people to believe you is 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 important and i know from having interviewed people recently that still less than three percent of, of vc dollars go to female-led businesses it is still a challenge and you are talking about something that some men find incredibly um difficult or uncomfortable to talk about indeed yeah so it was a really interesting journey. I I came out of the sex tech world um, and raising money in the sex tech world as a female founder is something else entirely. So when I, I came into fertility, I met my co-founder, David, and it was immediately clear that we needed to raise money um, to get this off the ground. And, and actually, someone once said to me that businesses never actually go out of business. They just run out of cash. And that could not mm. be more true when you're starting a medical device business, particularly hard, anything hardware, that could not be more true. And I think really the process of fundraising as a female founder for a fertility product was fascinating for, for two reasons. One, you are pushing a predominantly male audience, um, and that is not without its challenges. I would say that... There's a, an immediate filter for who gets the business and is the right investor versus who isn't. And that's who is capable of comfortably talking about a medical device that's inserted into the vagina. If they can't say the word, they probably don't belong on your cap table. And that was just such a clear test uh, for me anyway about that. And, and I think the other thing I'll say that was a little bit challenging raising as a woman raising for a fertility product is it's, you know, for obvious reasons, it's illegal to ask a woman what her family plans are. Um, and yet in the question, are you solving your own problem? Suddenly there's a way to circumvent 
the law on that. And every time I got asked that question, there was a part of me that wondered whether there was an agenda behind the reason that question, you know, is there an agenda behind that question? Are they basically saying, hey, are we going to invest in you? You're going to bring this to market and get pregnant and leave. Um, and so I know that the, the theory is that founders who are solving their own problems are more motivated than those that aren't. But I think that founders who are solving a problem that they care deeply about are just as motivated. And whether I do or don't want a family felt to me irrelevant to the process. And so I think when we got some feedback that effectively the feedback could have been translated as, hey, we're going to pass because we think this founder is solving her own problem and we doubt continue. Oh. Yeah, what I don't get about that is you're not you're not solving your own. Pro I mean, the, the the technology already exists. If it was just you trying to get pregnant, I'd that, go to a clinic. You, you're you're trying to bring a market to millions. Exactly. You know, the, the, I don't understand actually how that's relevant. Honestly, and as if IVF is harder than starting a startup. <laughs> if I really wanted to solve my own problem, I would not be here. <laughs> you know, stress, fertility. No, but I think it was that was really interesting to me, and I think it made me very sensitive. It just made me very sensitive to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I think it's been fascinating to talk to you. I think there's a, a huge amount in there that's both relevant for anybody, but also in particular for for female-led businesses and, and and kind of in this space where it, it, there are barriers, unfortunately, yeah. still to getting these products to yeah. market. If, if we were to leave it with one piece of advice that you've picked up from your journey that you would say to um, men or women, trying to bring this kind of product to market, what, what would you say to them? I would say that if you are working in hardware, it will take longer and cost more than you think it does. And I say this because so many of our investors who actually ended up investing in us, so they must have already known it, said that to us when we were pitching along the journey saying, oh yeah, we're absolutely going to be launching in X number of months. And they would all turn around and say, no, no, you know, it's going to cost a lot more and take longer. And I'd look at my business plan. I'd look at the financial forecast and I'd say, oh, no, no, we're on track. Absolutely not. I promise you it will take longer and cost you more. So just be ready for that if you are working in medical and in hardware. Well, look, Tess, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, enjoy South France. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. It's been a pleasure. Right. What did you make of this? You know what? I really 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 enjoyed this interview like obviously I, I enjoy listening to a lot of the interviews and, and um cover myself there but um you're right it is it is like it, not challenging but it's I don't know it's, it's something so different and like obviously again like a lot of the people who come onto the pod have really like a lot of the stuff they're doing is really innovative and like disruptive and like revolutionary and like I love listening about it but like these guys I was just so taken aback that I feel like what they're trying to do is is just so remarkable and I think she's really honest in the interview as well and I think yeah I just um like really enjoyed listening to it actually I think I'm one of these people as well like I'm a bit weird when she was sort of saying about like when she's talking to founders and stuff and yeah, you know, they have to be able to like be on board with what she's doing and then also not be afraid to like talk about vaginas and stuff like that. And I'm one of these mm -hmm. people that makes me go a bit like, oh God, like, I don't know, I'm a bit sort of strange and uncomfortable. I'm comfortable around it. So you can hear it in my voice. I'm even going a bit uncomfortable and strange now, but I'm quite glad that I listened to this and I thought, you know what? She is just so open and yeah, she just says it with, with yeah, just such kind of like, 
honesty and she's just not holding back and I was just like you know these are things that people need to talk about and have this open sort of dialogue and just take away any sort of stigma that's that's around it yeah I mean it's funny isn't it it is one of those things that we're naturally a little bit prudish about but we totally shouldn't be because I don't know globally but in this country the age that people are starting families is getting later if Mm -hmm. I think about my friends um you know, uh, people that I went to university with and, and whatever else and, and so on, they're all kind of mid to late 30s now and either having their first or second children. That's geriatric if you go back like a generation. Mm-hmm. The idea that you'd be starting families in your mid to late 30s is is nuts. Like my mum was 26 and 30, um, 26 when she had my sister and 30 when she had me. And when she was 30 and had me at that time, 30 was considered old. Mm. And so people are beginning to run into problems around fertility and um, IVF is obviously something that a lot of women have to put themselves through and it's painful and it's not nice and it's expensive as I understand it. I don't really know a huge amount about it and that's part of the problem as well because men don't really educate themselves and male sperm counts are falling worldwide and no one really knows why. So we do need to tear down some of the stigma because it, it leads to a lot of unhappiness in relationships because... People don't talk about it properly and couples don't have a dialogue about it. And that can easily lead to resentment and anguish and heartache for people. Yeah, no, I think by doing this, like, you're right. Even if like one couple have a conversation around it or it, you know, it starts to, you know, be on, be online and it's just a bit more sort of like, I don't know, just, just if people start talking about it a little bit more, it's, it's going to sort of slowly break down those barriers and then people will feel more comfortable having those kind of conversations. And and like I said, I think that's why I enjoyed the interview so much and admired her because she did just speak so freely about it so much so that then you were listening and thinking like, why do I make such a big issue about these this stuff and about this this topic when it's it's nice it's such a natural kind of thing um, but is that, is that because of the way that societal kind of norms like girls and boys at school in particular i think girls are taught almost that and we i think we touched on it in the interview that sex is bad you shouldn't do it it's going to get you in trouble isn't it awful and <laughs> that's not me kind of advocating for teenagers to go out and experiment <laughs> absolutely not but at the same time you kind of have to be grown up about it and know that that 16, 17 year olds are going to, whether you want to stop them or not. Mm. And that telling them and the you're scaring them rather and telling them all the ways how not to do things and not tooling young people with actually the kind of information that can help them make better choices is kind of stupid and then leads to a point where you have adult populations who don't know how to talk about this stuff because from a young age you were taught almost not to and that it was a bad thing yeah I think you've hit the nail on the head there like it is exactly that it's it's so much it's so we're told not to talk about it or go and have sex that then people are so like there's a level of like shame around it almost I don't know if shame's kind of like a bit too harsh but I don't think I don't think there is I mean you know (laughs) you're actively discouraged when you're young um, and there's an element that it's like you shouldn't encourage it, but you shouldn't if it's going to happen. Then you want to make sure that that people have the right information. Mm. Yeah, you're right, and I think it's about finding that balance, isn't it? It's like not encouraging it and not saying like, yeah, you know, 
go teenagers, go wild, go do what you need to do. But but equally, as you say, it's not locking it away that people then feel this level of shame and, and just feel like they can't ever speak mm. about it. And then they're almost like it has an impact into their sort of adult life as well. And then that's yeah. why, yeah, it is like a bit of an uncomfortable kind of topic or it is a bit sort of strange. And, and I think the fact that she said when she tries to find founders, she sort of looks to have those open conversations and sort of see people's reactions and just ensure that she can get someone on board that is okay with like with what they're doing I think the fact that she sort of even has to do that that's that's kind of I don't know it's, it's strange in like the sort of the society that we live in well I mean her she, she, we didn't record this in the interview but we were chatting um before we hit record and she was talking about the fact that her background she had worked at a sex tech organization but specifically mm-hmm dealing with teenage girls having safe sex because the first time for women is often basically shit or abusive. It's an awful experience in one way or another. But it's really challenging because obviously you can't do anything commercial when you're talking about sex and minors because that's illegal. Yeah, of course. But it's a, it's a tricky area because, you know, she was saying as a woman, it's something that she can relate to, that that's what most teenage girls kind of have that first experience of. And if that's your first footing and your first start in that kind of aspect of your life then you're always going to be playing catch-up and um yeah and it, it does push that kind of shame barrier and it stops people talking and then maybe that's what leads to years later there being kind of this problem where it's well it's anything anything related to fertility to families to that kind of stuff well it's the woman's thing you know mm. kind of ties into that whole blue and pink jobs bullshit kind of dialogue and um and and it's kind of seen as this thing that the 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 female partner in a relationship or the person who's trying to get pregnant because it might be same sex relationship but that person is dealing with it and it's not the guy's responsibility when it absolutely is the guy's responsibility but society says all, otherwise almost yeah it's it's such an like an old fashioned way of looking at it isn't it and it's it's what you were saying earlier about um obviously about like families and and sort of when people start families like that's almost like flipped on its head and, and people are starting to sort of push back and then maybe more career focused and, and yeah. they want to, you know, have a family a bit bit later in life. But the idea that it very, very much sort of falls to the woman, it's her sort of responsibility and stuff. Like that idea is still very, very old fashioned. I think that almost needs to sort of catch up with where we are in terms of sort of starting families and it being a bit older and that becoming more normal. Like yeah, you know, sort of men talking about it, and it it being men's sort of responsibility as well. Like that that side of things needs to become way more sort of normalised. Yeah, and look, we, and there's been many podcasts over the years where it's been like men probably have to put more pressure on other men, right? Like we had LV on a couple of years ago, and it was Darren Good who's the head of marketing for LV, uh, you know, and they're they're making femtech products around breastfeeding and and strengthening your pelvic floor and stuff, and and he would challenge other men around their uh, prudishness around those subjects. Um, and equally, you know, if there's domestic abuse or whatnot, then it should be men talking to other men about about issues. There's there's an element that, that that whole part of society, like we're not very good when I say we men at tackling those issues with other guys mm. and pulling up friends on it or being more open and sharing experiences. Um, you know, we've talked about mental health, God knows how many times on this podcast, but it, the, all all of this is kind of interconnected. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think, I think with things like this, it's like doing it in a way that it's not, 
like obviously yes you can challenge people but maybe not in like a confrontational way no, yeah, yeah. like it, it's like you say just trying to have those conversations and then make it way more open and relaxed and and sort of just yeah just getting sort of guys to speak a little bit more basically um i've been, I've been asked by people whether or not i'd have conversations with people that i know because you know my wife has said oh well x y and z is struggling with with this why don't you talk to the other half and it's mm-hmm. like don't really know how to don't really know if i want to i don't you know which is me failing on what i'm saying but probably need to step up a little bit more and try and do those things it's difficult though isn't it because you're right like you just like how do you approach these situations like when you get into like a conversation about it and it's back and forth and stuff like then it, it's it becomes more normal but it's it's actually that first approach and knowing how to because it's obviously it's like it's a, it's a sensitive thing isn't it so it's just knowing how to go about it and not offend someone or not upset them but equally not be like insensitive to the the kind of the mindset and the situation that they're in I don't know yeah. it, it is tough and we're kind of going back and I guess like backtracking on what we've just said but, but well it's, no we're just you're just aware of the, of the challenges but saying that we need to try harder because yeah definitely otherwise otherwise you're not going to make much progress and bare fertility exists because women need more information and help and it's brilliant what Tess is doing hmm. yeah like I said I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this interview really did let's take a quick break Tess thanks for being our guest when we come back we're going to talk about TikTok again a couple of years ago Michael and Jacob two friends from London were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole Michael a professional footballer at the time realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear overconsumption and underuse was all too common Hilo was born a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Yeah, we're talking about TikTok because they've opened up. This is this is interesting, right? Because it's almost related to TikTok and not related to TikTok in some regards. Right, we're okay. talking about what 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 is the future of the high street? God knows how many times over the past, and like obviously the trend for digital shopping is obviously massively up on the last year because of the pandemic, and TikTok have opened up um, their first pop up venue in the UK at Westfield where you can go in, you don't buy products. They almost give you TikTok merch for free, but for like five pounds, you can have a masterclass with one of their influencers on site. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've got um, the influencers. They include British teenager Kyle Thomas. Don't know who that is. Comedian Ahiz Ufar, don't know who that is. Chef Poppy O'Toole, don't know who that is. Freestyle footballers Jeremy Lynch and Ben Black, again, don't know who they are. But they are all going to be there. And for £5, you can have sessions explaining how to make content for TikTok. Um, There will also, this is quite cool, there will be sessions which will be available for parents to learn how to to keep teenagers safe. So that's good. That is good, Um, yeah. 
But yeah, wannabe TikTok stars will be able to book free sessions to use the venues to create their own films. And it will feature uh, several rooms which can provide you different backdrops, including a kitchen where you can showcase vile recipes and cook-offs. And there will be a dressing room, dressing room rather, which will host fashion, beauty and transformation challenges. Okay, now you've explained it, I'm kind of in two minds about this. <laughs> right, so my first reaction was like, oh God, like, what is this? This sounds like an absolute joke. Second reaction is actually, because I, I just thought it was going to be like how you can make a video on like a makeup tutorial or something like that. But the fact that if it's like comedians and uh, I don't know, I'm still sort of not overly sort of sold on this, but I think if, if it's basically people who can sort of teach you something, you yes. can get involved. It's quite creative. It gets you out the house as well. So this is the thing, right? Westfield are obviously seeing this as a way of attracting people into the shopping center and oh. then shopping in other shops. If we're talking about how does the high street evolve? How does the high street stay relevant? How do town centers stay relevant? Experiences are going to be key to it. You know, we've been talking about how technology going into shops and kind of like um, augmented reality for makeup and so on. This this is kind of the natural extension of it. And you look and go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. They're using a tech platform but to create a physical experience that people will, will get out their house, exactly like you say, for go to Westfield. And then all of a sudden, you have a thriving center again. Yeah, I mean, that side of it, I was kind of looking at it from the actual idea from TikTok. But yeah, that side of it is, is actually quite clever because, like you say, people are drawn into the shopping center. They might go and do this experience for, I don't know, say an hour, a couple mm. of hours or whatever. And then even if they get like lunch in Westfield, even if they then, I don't know, pop to the shops, pick something up or just have a browse around and then buy a couple of bits, like straight away the the aim that they're trying to sort of get to is has been achieved basically. Yeah. Say every person spends at an absolute minimum, like, I don't know, five pounds, 10 pounds or whatever. Like, yeah, you've, you've sort of, you've done exactly what you set out to do. So that side of things, yeah, I think it's actually quite creative and quite clever. Yeah, And look, I joke about not knowing who any of these influences are, but to, to people, to, to people out there, these will be megastars who they're desperate to meet and would be really interested to get this information from. So they will, they will go. Yeah. I mean, I don't know who any of those are either, but... That's because you're getting old as well, clearly. <laughs> yeah, clearly. But I mean, it's um, <laughs> it's like when you used to do like, I say back in the day, now I do sound old, but like when, I know they still do them, but like book signings and stuff like that. You know what? I was, I was, exa I was thinking book signings exactly. It is like that. It is. It's like, just draws people in, doesn't it? And yeah. then you've got queues and queues of people. More people come along. Like, and they go buy, know, buy more books. Exactly. When they're in Waterstones or whatever. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it's um, it is a good idea, but I can't imagine. Obviously, this is TikTok doing this, and this is in Westfield. I can't imagine, like, say you were just. I know, obviously, we're saying the high street, and I know, obviously, Westfield is still shopping, but how could you do this elsewhere, or what other companies could could kind of do this? Of course, it's it's difficult. I mean, TikTok are talking about doing pop ups in other town centres and stuff, um, and they've probably got enough influencers that they could get people in various different cities and locations. Um, but it points to a general direction for the high street and town centers as a whole that you, mm. you know, this isn't, if you, if, if retailers have a straight battle with online, they are going to, they, they are going to lose. Yeah. In all reality, because online retailers obviously have such, such smaller overheads and, you know, which is why a lot of shops that have been, um, in physical offices of uh, physical uh, retail spaces rather have gone online and it's convenient for people and with a, you know with less people kind of maybe willing to travel than before 
that's going to be an issue. Um, but there is a definite way forward that if you can create it to be something interesting that people want to go for, you're right. And then they, and then they all spend a minimum of five pounds. Then it gives it gives kind of viability to a to a high street, and it would be a shame because there is nothing as quite so depressing as going to a busy high street that you once remember being full of really good shops and seeing lo- and there's nothing against charity shops, but seeing loads of charity shops and whatever else and pound shops and stuff like that, and you just kind mm-hmm. of go, kind of says to you that this area is a little bit depressed and people aren't spending money. Yeah, but I find that that seems to be the case wherever I go at the moment. Yeah, like, just it just every high street is just. There's just nothing left, really, is there? Like, like you say, and, and I think obviously online shopping is really convenient. It's great; it has its perks. But I don't think there's anything better than like going and trying stuff on, which I know we obviously haven't been able to do for like the last year or so. But like trying something on in a shop or having an actual like browse around, like being there in person. I think I don't know. I, I don't mind online shopping, but my preference would always be to actually go and see it before I buy it. Yeah. But, I mean, this is quite a cool idea, though. I agree. No, I agree. I agree. There you go. And you thought it was just going to be another boring article about TikTok. I, I did. I was, was like, at the beginning, I shut it down. I was like, oh, God. But yeah, you know what? I um, I actually do quite like this. There you don't go. know if I'll be queuing up to go and see... Not going to spend five pounds for a tutorial. No, I mean, it's quite reasonable, though, isn't it? They could have, like, completely rip people off on this but i mean five pound is pretty reasonable but still i won't be in the queue oh it's the it's the cheapest cooking class ever if, yeah. if it's this poppy or penny o'toole or whatever her name is i should check the article <laughs> <la0 laughs> how good poppy, are the poppy o'toole today? poppy o'toole yes i have no idea um anyway for five pound they can't be great <laughs> Amber, thank you very much for your time today no worries see you soon i don't